Why do we leave our safe, secure, lucrative careers to become filmmakers? This week, I speak with writer, director, designer, and so much more, Wale Oijide. Wale's debut feature, Bravo Burkina, had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival in the next section. The film follows a Burkina Bay boy who migrates to Italy, but later discovers a way to go back in time to regain what he lost. The film bends time to explore the meaning of existing in two states while exploring love and migration. It's beautiful. It's moving. It has a texture that comes across on the screen unlike anything I've seen. Wale's work and the film focuses on evolving the narrative of migrants, leveraging his background in fashion to assert his character's dignity and fullness. The costumes, the music, the performances are dreamy yet powerful. And in our conversation, we speak about Wale's storied career. His designs have appeared prominently in Marvel's Black Panther and his experience in the filmmaking and storytelling world. He's been a Sundance Feature Film Fellow, a National Geographic Explorer, a TED Fellow, and more. His documentary, After Migration, Calabria, is streaming on the Criterion channel. But before all this, Wally had another career, one that people invest years and a ton of money in to even get to be a part of this working community. He was a lawyer. Some of you listening may be just starting to think about a career as filmmakers, but you may already have an existing career. It's scary and it's hard to think about leaving that all behind, especially especially if you put time and money into it. So no matter what stage you're at, I think Wale's wise advice is exactly what the doctor ordered. So let's dig in. Welcome, Wale, to the No Film School podcast, which you are familiar with, I hear. Quite. I discovered No Film School during the pandemic as a casual listener and somebody who's just seeking to learn more about cinema in general. And so it's very interesting to me that, like, I guess three years on from my discovery, I'm speaking to people much like myself. Um, so it's an interesting thing of, like, you can be here, too. It's, we're, all trying, we're all trying it's to get there. So it is so... Wonderful to hear that. We had the same experience when we had Helena Regian on, the director of Bodies, 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 which made me, as also a No Film School listener of, gosh, probably a decade now, I started listening when I was first like, I think I want to do this thing. What should I do? Turning to podcast, discovering it and, and learning so much. So I think that means so much for our listeners to hear. Yeah, we're all just people who put pads on, same as the next guy. Absolutely. Well, I I think that you also have accomplished so much. You are a filmmaker. You're also a designer, a writer, a speaker, a photographer, a musician, and a lawyer. Yes. (laughs) So that last one against me, please. I I think that adds an edge that is quite impressive. And, and, And a lot of the work that you do is work to combat biases. Yeah. Crafting storytelling. So how did you get your start? Uh, <laughs> the most you know, big question yeah, in the world. Well, well, there are two questions I get often, which always require like a bit of pause because it's like, which version? How long do you have? Uh, the where are you from? What and the what do you do? Because it's like, all right, what? How long are we going to be here? Uh, but I think we the short, time. yeah, the short answer really is I've always been a storyteller, and I think when one steps back and look at looks at all of my work, it makes sense if you look at it through the lens of like, well, this person obviously has a a specific point of view perspective thing that they want to say and they use different mediums or media to convey the same message. And the thing that I often tell young up-and-coming artists of all sorts is that really once you divorce yourself from the necessity of like a particular structure or form or format, then it's really easier because whether you're writing a poem, you're writing a song, you're making a feature film, as long as you have a thing that you're trying to say, then not being too forceful, it must be in this format that you can say your thing. And so if you don't have the budget for a film today, you can still write your poem or write your song. And so to never let your kind of the shape or the structures or the rigidity of a particular format constrict your voice because you always have your voice. Did you always have that perspective of let 
the let the form be what it needs to be based off of that? Or did you have a moment where you sort of found that freedom and gave yourself that freedom? I think that, you know, when you're in anything, particularly when you're younger, you're really, really married to the shape of the form because oftentimes we de- we um, develop our identities from the forms that we're in. So when I was a teenager, I was a drummer and the guitarist in indie rock bands. And I thought the thing I do is I play guitar, I play drums. This is what I am. This is what makes me cool. This is what makes me identifiable by people who I want to be loved by. Um, you get older. When I'm a lawyer, it's like I'm wearing a suit. I got a briefcase. I walk down the street. You go, well, this guy's about something. Um, from a designer, so you know, we think very much that like the costume makes us when it's actually the reverse. Mm-hmm. But you step back, and if you, as you get older and you mature, you look back and you realize, well, I've, I've always been writing songs about, or stories about, or poems about acceptance, being found, being loved, being being seeming like an outsider. And once you realize, like, oh, you've always been a person who's conveying a particular thing, it doesn't matter. You're not a drummer. You're not a guitarist by birth, but you are a storyteller. And so if you happen to fall on an island or in a desert with none of these tools around you, are you going to just not say things? No. You're going to tell yourself stories or you're going to talk to a coconut or something. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so, so therefore... you to survive. Exactly, exactly. So once you recognize that about yourself, it is, I think, somewhat free because, you know, I, I meet younger... And by the way, I'm still relatively young as a filmmaker in this industry, but I pe- meet people who ask me like, about being here and the idea that you've made a feature, it's while it's wonderful and while I'm pursuing other things, you can't be like, well, I can't get an Alexa next month, so I'm not going to make a thing. That is right. patently absurd. I've right. never filmed on my phone. Um, and I know that's a kind of like, it can be the flippant answer, but really the answer surely is today we have more advanced tools than many of the filmmakers that we hold beloved did decades and decades ago. And yet they made right. masterworks. So you can't let the excuse of like, I don't have X, Y, and Z equipment stop you from making a thing if you are truly somebody who believes in making a thing. You can make your thing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Start a band, find your friends, or do it by yourself. Um, it may not be in the shape that you would hope, uh, but neither was the first shape of a thing that Coron or Tarantino or Scorsese, the shape of the first thing wasn't what we saw on the screen today. But the essence, the soul of the story probably was there from day one. And so the really it is about finding your essence, finding your voice from the beginning. That's more precious than any particular tools. Yeah. What do you, can you think of one particular, whether it was a story or a poem or something where you're like, I don't have the tools that I think I need, but I'm going to try to make it with what I have. Yeah. yeah. So in filmmaking terms, if we look at, we jump ahead somewhat to the, the film we're discussing today at Bravo. It's Bravo Burkina. It's a really, I think by any stretch of the imagination, it's, it would be called a small film. It's a feature film that's a very tiny feature film, both budget-wise and both in terms of, of, of um, scale. But I think it's an interesting thing in that if, you'd give them, if I had the luxury of more time, more crew, it might perhaps have more appendages to it. But I had the rare opportunity of stepping away from a project being, that is exactly me. That is my soul on the screen. It's exactly what I want just in a smaller shape. And so, yes, yeah. if you have more, more zeros, if you have more uncles who are wealthy, more partners who throw more stuff at you, um, you can have a, white, a, a more muscular version of mm-hmm. your thing. But I think regardless of like the amount of toys in the sandbox you have to play with, the hope is that you come in and come away from a space with a point of view that you're, you have to express. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how many zeros you have. We've all seen things that like, that were massively resourced yet clearly yeah. like what what did You're you like, want me to come up with? I don't, what exactly. is this right and then we've seen yeah. things that are like uh, that are relatively small and yet we've all seen shorts or like quote-unquote low budget films that like hit us in the gut right. and it didn't matter how much it cost it was like this thing struck me and it saw me in a ways i hadn't been seen before um so i think we think too much often we make too much of um how much a thing costs how much mm-hmm. it made and oftentimes we think less about like what was the voice and in and, and what ways did did the f- filmmaker find a way to make themselves be truly expressed on the screen. So yeah. I recognize it and I didn't answer your thing like I should have. No, it's all but good. I, it's but all- I, yeah, but I think, you know, it's ultimately what was, I don't know if there's one particular story. All of it is a continuum of like, you know, I'm just, I remind myself to be so grateful. I try to be so grateful in, in each moment because none of the stuff is Owed or promised to any of us, no matter how hard we've worked, no matter how talented we think we are, there are people who are more talented 
the people who quote unquote deserve it more. So the making of anything is accidental, miraculous. And so if you should come into every room, just happy to be in that room, happy that you've hoodwinked enough people to be in that room with you or be on that set with you, because it takes like the belief and the trust. And so for any of us to like, guys, we made this thing that we can watch is truly a privilege and a gift. We happen to be born in an era in which the tools are just more accessible now, whereas people who were just as creative as us, maybe more revolutionary, maybe smarter 10, 15 years ago, didn't have that chances that you and I have to make, yeah. make these things. So we're really, really lucky, which is why it's like, I feel strongly about not squandering the moment at the time and the space we were at. One of the things that I loved about the film was how full it felt. Like I, I realized the reality of a, a Sundance film is that it doesn't have a Marvel budget, but like it still felt like this very expansive world. It takes mm. place. It's a time traveling film. And the fullness also applies to the performances that you were able to get out. But I think one of the things we've talked about recently on the podcast a lot that I think is really interesting to hear these days because we're we're focusing more on what it means to be a leader and a director is creating a set and building a team where people are like fully bought into the project. And I felt I felt that in your film. Yeah. So oh, can wow. you thank you. Thank you. Talk a yeah. little bit about assembling the team and who was there. Because if you didn't have, again, the Marvel budget and millions yeah. of extra people around, you had to be very particular about who you're yes. bringing on. I will answer that, but it's going to be helpful if I better answer an early question of how did I get here? It'll yeah. give you some context. Perfect. So, and then we'll uh, circle back. Yeah, so as a place setter, to, to, to give you guys some context on what Gigi was talking about, Bravo Burkina is a time travel migration allegory made in Italy in Burkina Faso. And it features a mix of uh, both non-professional actors and and a couple of very small amount of quote-unquote professionals. So I've been doing this. We had this methodology for a couple of years. Probably 2016 or so, I went to Italy to put on a fashion show. And this was the height of the refugee crises. And you know, we're looking at, I'm, as an American, I'm opening newspapers to see what's happening where I'm going in Italy. I'm seeing people to look like myself. I'm washing up on the beaches of Southern Italy. So literally being drowning while crossing into the Mediterranean. And it occurred to me that as, as an artist, as a designer, there are ways in which I can use to speak to issues that I'm passionate about. We all have this opportunity. We think that perhaps many issues, whether the climate change, uh, racism, transphobia, xenophobia, are things that are just too big for us to tackle. And they are big issues. But my belief is that each of us has a very small thing we can do, whether it be affecting one particular person, and that is the way in which we make change. So I, in that fashion show in Italy, I cast half of the models as professional models and the rest were migrants. And of course, the audience was none the wiser because surprise, surprise, you give people an opportunity, they will rise to the occasion. And so we go to a refugee camp and I cast just as I would cast actors and models from a casting call. I did that with people who were vulnerable and they were all too eager to, to participate and to collaborate because yeah. the stories they've seen of themselves, they can, as, as I said, it's like these harrowing images of them washing upon beaches, sitting in the back of an ambulance in Syria covered in ash. These are the, the narratives we have of when we think of like refugees and migrants. We see them on this exodus away from home. And there's a narrative oftentimes of they are so weak, they're so vulnerable, or they're coming to take. And there's rarely this narrative of like this aspirational narrative is, is far from these images. And so as right. somebody who, who by definition as, as a maker of images, a designer, a photographer, what we are, by definition, our job is to make images that are objectively beautiful. And that is very often used for frivolous means, very often used for means of being exploitative or for making those who consume the goods feel like they're not good enough. You're not thin enough. You're not tall enough. You're not white enough. If you buy this purse, if you buy this dress, if you buy these heels, if you get these kicks, you will be just a notch better than the pack of the masses below you and you'll be superior. That is the, the strength of the ubiquitous fashion industry and consumer industry that we all live in. My ethos has been, what would happen if you took that met methodology and turned it on its head? What would happen if this tool of division that makes us all feel inadequate was used to make us look at people that we keep on the outskirts? What, yeah. happens, what happens when the refugee becomes a figure that we are so in love with, we want to be them? Then we invite them into our homes, into our borders, into our job opportunities. And so that is what, tool of like, you know, if you work, I look at it as like, same as when I was a lawyer, I was working 
on the Death Stars, essentially, is how I saw it. Wow. So when you, wor- you work with the tools of the Empire, you understand the Empire's tools. What happens when you then put those tools in the hands of the rebels is essentially the way that I work. I love that. There's a woman that I used to work with who would say, I'm going to use my privilege to beget privilege. And you're using your platform to create empathy, which is so powerful. And and I I have one question that I think is relevant right now, not to cut you off, but one thing that, you know, you've spoken about your investment in evolving the narrative of of evolving the narrative of migrants. And and that shows in the film because you really do elevate these characters and put them in this this powerful humanized and like I'm like want to be them positioned um in such a graceful way with such respect and it's awesome. I've had a problem in my life where sometimes I go into my storytelling and I'm like I'm going to show that true crime is destructive and exploitative. And so it is, it's a fact and it's an intellectual thing that I have been struggling to tell a story around for a long time because I couldn't let go of the facts of it. And it was having the story sort of fall to the wayside because I was trying to pack in too much. But what you've accomplished, Wale, is you have gone in with a mission and you've crafted work across the board that is not holding back on story or execution or to your point, creating something beautiful at the end of the day. So like, how have you managed that? And how have you balanced that? Yes, I think it's important to to have, you know, I call it, you can call it a point of view, you can call it a mission, you can call it an ethos. I think when when I step into a room where people, as, as you thankfully graciously looked at my work over the years, it's very clear that like, this is a person that has a thing that they want to say. This is a person who believes strongly about a particular perspective. And I think that we should not be shy about understanding why we are on this planet. Because there is so much, we are drowned in a deluge of just messaging and content. And the vast majority of it is saying nothing except, please buy more of me, whatever me is. And so to the extent mm-hmm. that you can say, like, listen, I have a flag. There's a hill. I'm planting it. And Gigi is here to say this. And she believes in this. And this is what it is. Um, and I, I wouldn't be too concerned about, like, on version two of this thing you made, version two of this messaging. It was it, maybe it was a bit heavy hand. That's a, I've a, this is my second film view what we're talking about. There's a previous one that I love, but it's perhaps a bit more on the nose. And that's fine. Mm. The more of these you make, the more refined you get. But this, yeah. the messaging doesn't necessarily change. You just become more sophisticated in the way you, the ways in which you can say, all right, well, let's do this a bit more deftly. And perhaps you need to, to like say it with your chest fully so that next time you can whisper it. And sometimes it is effective to say it with your chest. And there are other situations in which you need the scalpel, you need to whisper. And I also don't think it's necessarily wrong. I and mean, when you look mm-hmm. at all of the filmmakers that we, that we love, if we look at their work over the years and, and they've like shifted and molded and, and they have these ebbs and flows. And so I think it's, that's a long way of saying it's not a, if it is a problem, it's not a problem that you solve overnight. I think it's one that you, it's, it's a piece of thing that you carve out of the marble and it shapes mm-hmm. itself over time. And you will get to the, the level of nuance that you think is appropriate. And every project is going to have its own different level of nuance. They're going to be, maybe today it's going to be a slasher film and you need to have, you need to show the ills of, of men in our society by showing the stark version of them. Or maybe mm-hmm. it's like, like a more comedic version that just shows like, here's a subtle relationship and showing how like the passive aggressive microaggressions that a man can have in a relationship with his partner, even if he loves her very much and he's not a slasher. So there are different ways in which you can like address this with different scales of, I think of it as like a volume knob. How yeah. whether it's zero, can, from two to eight, there's a range and they're not wrong necessarily. They're just fit differently. So I think to, yeah. to answer your question, I think it's, you know, the more important thing is that you care that true crime is affecting us in a way that is perhaps not the most positive and not the right thing for us over time. And you're finding the right ways, ways in which to, to bring that forward by using film. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would worry less about like, I nailed it. You know, nobody ever when we talk yeah. about Bravo, there are lots of things I didn't quote unquote nail, but I think more importantly, I'm aiming for a thing. And with yeah. each project, hopefully I, I get dialed in a little bit closer or being more effective in my, my goal. With, with back to Bravo, I wonder if actually it was knowing that you wanted to tell a particular type of story 
And is that when you discovered that you were telling a time travel story? What was the sort of story evolution? Yeah. So I'll t- let's talk about how Bravo Rakina got made. So here's the secret for those of us who uh, have seen or will see the film. You'll probably, you'll probably, which would say you to should, me, which, which you all which, should, which you should. We hope to get to at some point. Um, you're going to be, so the runtime is 63 minutes and you probably will be like, why was I get off and why was this film so short? And I tell people, ha ha, it's actually is too long. So yeah. So what was happening is Bravo Burkina was intended to be a practice run for my quote unquote first real feature. Wow. So, so I set out to make a short film and we came home. I look at the assembly, which was sitting at about 70 minutes, which is still tiny, but still way over what I thought I was doing. And we landed at 60, which is now like, oh, whoops, we made a feature, guys. Yeah. Um, and so what, what happens is the quote-unquote real film I'd been writing and working on that went to the Sundance Labs is now like poised to be made. And so we have this interesting situation in which like the, the quote-unquote real film is actually the second film, which is in the works. Um, so Wow. They say yeah. shoot your movie before you shoot your movie. Yeah, so, so that's what I, I accidentally did that. And so I think it's, everything is so much about just being prepared for opportunity. And also when I talk about making the best of an opportunity. So I had the opportunity to, to, to what I thought was to make a short and that became a feature and it was not the plan. And so one of the things that you have the luxury of is shooting your movie before you shoot your movie. What were some of the, the biggest learnings that you're going to be taking into this? I guess this would be your third feature. This would be the second feature second of third feature. film. Yeah. Third um, film. Got it. it. And it's going to be certainly much more muscular, I guess, more, more resourced than broad. But I, mean, I wouldn't, you know, I've been so, so pleased and, and privileged the way that Bravo came out because it's, you know, it's again, it's a thing that was made. I was the adult in the room. I was every, I was, I was like wearing all the ads. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I really got to. In many respects, from like an artistic perspective, I got to make exactly what I want, which means when I get into other rooms, people are asking, what do you want to do? Who are you? I'm like, here. And there was no mm-hmm. studio saying like, a little bit more of this. So for better or worse, like it or not, this is what this person as a filmmaker is about. Um, and also gave me the chance to just make whatever mistakes I was going to make. And, and I'll make more, obviously. But it, it really was an opportunity in which I, we were basically, how are we getting to do this thing? Um, you know, so again, uh, two countries, 12 days, six people. Uh, it's just a, it's a film and a project idea. I just said, I'd never seen or heard of. It was, I think, you know, when you embark on something that's that ambitious, you don't realize how hard it's going to be. Or if you did, you just wouldn't do it. And so Mm -hmm. I think that like the the gift of my continuing naivety of like being this kid in Disneyland is like, Oh, I'll I'll go on the roller coaster. It's okay if I'm really short. I didn't realize, Oh, it's like, it's really scary up here. Um, but we, I think protecting that naivete is also such an important part of these early days. Not it is. early in the grand scheme of things. Like clearly you've had an extensive career and experience, but you know, being able to protect that lets us take big swings and big leaps and it does. accidentally make your first feature, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Now it, talk to me about how you ran your crew of six people. Yeah. So... This is interesting from like a craft standpoint. And I'll say, first of all, the importance of having, call it a band, call it a gang, call it a family, however you choose to look at it. Having a team that you trust and have a short end is so paramount, especially in circumstances in which it's going to be difficult from like a logistical standpoint. So we, my very small team and I made a, a previous short documentary called After Migration in Calabria, which was again made in Italy. Um, telling an intimate story about two African refugees settling in Italy. That short film is not streaming at Criterion Channel. It's also in Vimeo if everybody's interested. But that was a thing in which you had a crew of like mostly Americans with an Italian fixer and an Italian AC working very intimately in Italy. And so like, this is the band. We made this wonderful thing. So now I get a chance to come back. And now, now it's the guys we're doing Italy, but we're all still going to West Africa. But because we did this previous uh, international thing, the, the gang is really tight. And, and this mm-hmm. was a film in which, you know, many of the films we want, we love, whether they be like the Bond films that are set all across the world. These yeah. are things that we just, we just love the idea of them. And so again, when you're naive, sure, I'll make a globe trotting film because it sounds like fun. Yeah. We were fortunate to do the Italy portion first, which was kind of, we'd done Italy before. And so I think, I thought of that as almost like a media mode where I was working in somewhat familiar territory with people who were, 
who I'd worked with before. And it was really good that we did that before we went to Burkina Faso, West Africa, because that was super difficult. But because we had a week of essentially bonding, and even though we worked really hard, it was like getting a chance to gel. And I think, so I think to other filmmakers, the idea of like getting your team a chance to really kind of work in the trenches in ways that are not insurmountable first, before you really dive into the deep end. Because when it comes, when you're up against it and it's really, really a clench, you're going to want to know the, the people who are in the foxhole with you. Yeah. Because it's like, if, you, if we have another chance to like argue with petty stuff, when it gets to be like the nuclear option, we want to know that we can handle this together. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it's helpful. It's, it's, it's not going to be easy regardless. So you definitely want to have the people that you'd want to be hanging out with when Absolutely. you're in those trenches. Absolutely, yeah. Tell me about the costume design. So, so yeah. w- did you have somebody specifically on set handling that or were you more of a nimble crew where everyone was wearing all the hats, as you yeah, mentioned? Yeah, very, very nimble and it's a little both. So the costume design was myself and my fashion design partner, who was also the sound man. And so like oh, nice. everybody, everybody had like multiple jobs, but even then it was the difficulty of, um, you know, in, in my situation, I was director, part stylist, part executive producer, part basically everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you begin to recognize very quickly the importance of why we have all these jobs on the set, because even if you can do a job, does that mean you should? Because then you're just divided and you're having to answer as a director, having to have the answers to all the questions. Yeah which we make sound very heroic when we tell these stories, but it's also, it's like, it's almost irresponsible to be like, I got to think of wardrobe, I got to think logistics. It's like, no, just like split it up. But obviously we didn't have the luxury of like having as big a crew as one would want. Mm-hmm. So to your point, as, as a fashion designer, certainly I conceived of, of, of what we wanted the cast to be wearing beforehand. And then when we would go to these countries, we also would kind of pull from what the individuals were wearing in the local countries. Mm-hmm. And so that it, it felt real while also being stylized and heightened for our aesthetic to craft kind of a more cohesive, hopefully beautiful image of the story. I, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I, I, I can guarantee it. Um, now, uh, I, I want to hear how the story itself evolved. Um, yeah. Where What was the original genesis of the idea? And this may have been what you were starting to talk about when you were in Italy for Fashion Week yes. recruiting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then how it sort of evolved to the final cut that screened, that premiered at Sundance. Yes. So the the basic theme of the story of Bravo, without spoiling it, it's a three-part, you know, three-part structure intentionally so, basically featuring the life of, 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 a, of a character who we see in three phases of his life. So we see him as a young boy, we see him as a young man, and we see him as a older man. Uh, and so the idea was to understand that I had connections with migrants in Italy and connections with a weaving community in Burkina Faso. The idea was like, how do I connect these two geographic places? And so I thought, what if it's a kid who was born in West Africa who lives in this community? He then goes to Italy for some reason until we see him there and then he returns home. And so you have this natural three-act structure already just based on having a life that transfers between three places. Mm-hmm. And so we, we go like, all right, so this is a migration story which is a thing that I care about that you might care about, but the average person in the street would think they would not care about. So what mm-hmm. can we add to, into this mix to make it interesting to those of us who are not as inclined to like just that premise? And so it becomes yeah. like, a, what, what can we throw in here? And so certainly it's going to be costume designs to be beautiful, but like, what if it's time travel? What if he realizes that things aren't the way he would want them to be until we throw that into the mix? And so there's a time travel element. There's also a lot of like references to the the animism and costumes and spirituality from that part of the world and kind of the folk uh, magic that exists there. So we're weaving both the genre elements of like a time travel story, we're weaving in the beauty of a really wonderfully costume period piece exists in two different cultural landscapes. And we're also weaving in like the kind of costuming you would see in, in a Studio Ghibli type live action mm-hmm. film. And you're trying to marry all these things in a way that is not cartoonish, that is not a caricature, but still hopefully is evocative and just like takes the viewer to a different place. So to answer your question, it was, it was essentially looking at the many points that we had and, and trying to connect these dots. It's almost like reverse engineering. You know, like, all right, so as a filmmaker, you might say like, well, I have a res- res- resources. I have a laundrette. I've done an office. I've got a really kooky uncle who dresses crazy. Now, how <laughs> these do, uncles, how do, they're everywhere. Right, there's always uncles. So how there's do I re- always an uncle. How do I reverse engineer a plot with these elements? And so I think oftentimes... 
we all have, to your point, these uncles or these places, we have access to things that we would think would not be interesting. But if you, if you reverse engineer, therein lies the story. And so you, it's, you, know, you could tailor a story once you have the elements and understand elements you have access to. When you were describing the, the genre blending and the elements coming together, it, I, I, I started to get emotional. I don't know why, but it, it gave me the chills. And having you know recently seen the film and seeing how you pulled it off in, in such a grounded way, I don't know, I just, it moved me and it, it oh, moved me even more to, to hear about it. I think, I think, think it's, it's really what, what's interesting to me is the stories behind the stories, which I think many of us filmmakers, I mean, there's so many scenes in which you and I could talk about because you've seen it, but, but have meaning behind what's displayed on the screen. But I think what's important for any audience who has or hasn't seen the film to understand is, again, the idea, like many of the participants that you see on the film, even if it's not clear, these people aren't actors. And so you think about the importance of you come into a community and what is it that like you can contribute? So, of course, we're making a film, which is a product, which for you and I as filmmakers is one thing. But you got to think about the people people involved and they're going to exist beyond this product. And so the hope is that you don't fly into, in my case, or walk into a neighborhood and, and take and extract the, the essences of the people and right. leave them with nothing and be like, oh, yeah, this fancy guy from L.A. or, or wherever came from America, came by with their cameras and they left and they left us with nothing. And so the hope is that like, even if they don't even like your film, because there's no obligation that they like your film. But first of all, you, you can ideally pay them a living workable wage for the day. That's like step mm-hmm. one. And then step two, the hope is that while you're paying them as you would, you treat them with such respect and adulation that when you become a memory, because all of us will be memories and even our films that we are so beloved will become memories. Mm-hmm. But the ways in which we make people feel, they remember forever. And so the hope is that while you're in the field, on the ground, whatever you want to call it, in every interaction you have with both your crew and the people that you're in communities with, the hope is that you leave them with the same love and joy that you hope the audience is going to feel. That you hope that you give them as much of yourself as you hope to give to the world. So that when you're gone, they remember, oh yeah, this guy came to town and this lady came to town. And like, I never saw a film or the film was actually not that great, but they really looked me in the eye and they saw me. And they made me feel like one of them. And, yeah. and that's something I think that we, we need to keep in mind when we go to these places as, as filmmakers. Absolutely. That type of ethical filmmaking is something that we're starting to see shift within the industry. But I also have noticed, especially coming out of uh, Sundance 2023, a couple of different filmmakers talking about when they are shooting in a specific location that is not where they're from, how they need to be leading and also meeting people where they're at and meeting the local community where they're at, um, which I think is just critical to, it's it's so easy to exploit. And, and, and one of the partnerships that you had to make this film come to life was the ethical fashion initiative, which I'm sure you are so well versed in the exploitation within the fashion industry. And that is something that is, almost it's it's a tangible thing that we like we understand what fast fashion is doing to so many different parts of our world in a damaging way we don't have that tangibly in filmmaking because a lot of the damage is below the not line something, exactly exactly yeah. yeah and i think that's so you talked you mentioned leadership earlier and i don't know i think the way to phrase this without being egotistical is understanding that people who are generally join us on a set most people aren't coming in because you're paying them a million dollars. That's generally not the case. And certainly it's a job for, for all of us. But people are generally there on the set of a filmmaker because you've given them a thing to believe in. You know, in my case, it's very, very clear. And maybe sometimes it's not as overt as like, maybe the thing they believe in is we're making just a really cool thing that's going to get us out of our crummy lives for a couple of days. Maybe it's that simple. But just understanding that you are, people are buying into sometimes literally, sometimes spiritually, into a mission or into this higher belief. And if you give people a thing that's bigger than themselves, that's bigger than the product that, that they're making even. Like it's not about the film. It's about mm-hmm. what we're doing. It's all about what we're leaving by. And it's about the experiences that we had. If you give people that sense of belief, almost a, almost a religious type of thing, and yeah. that we're, we're here for a reason and a purpose, that is when people begin to feel like they are really cherished. And they understand that, that each of them is essential to the process. Like, where are you without your sound guy? Where are we without the grip? Who's, who's setting up yeah. the cameras? Like, <laughs> there you won't have, be a movie. 
you'd have nothing. And and so it's it it's it's it sounds simple and obvious, but I think too often we forget about the importance. This is why it's helpful when you go to Sundance, you see the whole squad, the band is all here, as far as I'm concerned. Because there mm-hmm. is no movie without my MVP, who is my AC slash grip slash Italian translator slash everything. You know, like the cinematographer was is I love my Jake Sanders incredible, but also we need the AC, we need a sound guy who was also the stylist. Like we need everybody. Mm-hmm. And so as much as it is I who get the privilege to talk to you and travel the world and my name is on the thing as the writer and director. I'm just one person in a very lovely band of people who care about each other when we're there to make the same film at the same time. It's it's kind of blows my mind sometimes how much of the focus is on either like people who are right in front of the camera or writer directors. And I mean, I'm a writer director. I don't want to take away from the work to be the through line throughout, but like if you look at the work of a cinematographer or the some of the least sung heroes of this industry, editors and post-production and sound yeah. designers, I sometimes laugh when my talking to my parents about filmmaking because they just like assume that you like, you're holding the camera, right? And I'm like, <laughs> doesn't work that way. You edit it in the camera, right? No doubt right. it, it doesn't work that way. Like now, so a lot of a lot of favors. Yeah, exactly. A lot calling in a lot of that. Um, yeah. Now, you have had just some very impressive exposure to the film industry. Your work has been featured in, you know, Marvel's Black Panther. And so I'm curious, you know, especially as you're looking at, as your career is growing, and I think it's fair to say in a few years from now, opportunities at that scale will be yeah. popping up. How do you... um learnings from being in other industries, but also coming into this film industry, like where do you think we can continue to lead in this sort of holistic, ethical way? Sure. So I think I'm really lucky that we're not having this conversation when I was 21. Not that I was a different person. And I think actually looking back, I, I very much had a lot of the same inclinations, but I think I, I phrase it often as like, what was under the marble was just less honed and was less yeah. revealed. May so I ask I, how old you are? No question my birthday is tomorrow. I'm turning 42. Happy birthday. Um, thank you. Fantastic. Happy birthday to me. To the, yeah. Um, and, and I make the point to say that like, so a couple points. Um, I am very, very, very clear about who I am and what it is that I'm here to do at this stage. Whereas 20 years ago, I would have had an idea of where I was heading, but I certainly didn't quite know who I was then. And yeah. so what, just what that means now is like, I'm, I'm, I very much know more importantly than knowing what I want, I know what I don't want. And it's also, it's, it's very obvious what this, this person, I point to myself in third person, he says, <laughs> when this, <laughs> when, when this megalomaniac accepts into a room, um, it's very apparent what they want to do in the world. Right, which just, right. it makes, it makes it easier for everybody in the, the equation. It's like, all right, well, he's not right for this because he's too sanctimonious or he's too whatever. Or we're making, if we're Marvel and we're making this futuristic film that, that portrays people from the African continent in a very regal way, the list for people who can make that imagery is actually very, very, very short. I happen to be mm-hmm. one of the few people on it. Um, and so that, that's when it becomes, those opportunities arise. You know, I often say that like, um, when it's the right time for you, it'll be the, the right time for only you. Because yeah. if, you, if you have a very specific thing you're saying, then you're not going to be, you're not McDonald's, which means the entire universe is not going to drive through your window. However, somebody wants to know with some sushi, it just becomes a much more smaller thing. Yeah. And so that is the, it's the longer road, but it's the more specific. And in my view, the purer road, because now like, if we talk about who makes uh, ethical mission focused ornate cinema, that's essentially me. And it I'm choosing ha- to you through the computer. You, it. Um, it doesn't have to be a lot of people, but it just means like, okay, this is my lane that I've carved. Right. Then we want that lane. We want that person. And that's fine. Whereas if you're competing for, and I don't say this in a derogatory way, but if you're competing for McDonald's or blue jeans or white t-shirts, that is to say, if you're making work that is so ubiquitous that it disappears into the, into the, it's the, it's, it's everything. Yeah. then it's just, to me, that just becomes incredibly difficult because there are literally thousands of views. You hop on Instagram and if like all your images look like everyone's, then who are you really? You are everyone, which perhaps yeah. means you are. Means maybe it means you're within the pulse of the moment. You're consumable for right now, but then so are a thousand other people. So right. how, how how do you get in a room? You're exactly. all the same. Um, exactly. So, so I think it's it's taking 
not, and this was not going to be not an intentional plan. It's just how it's worked out for me and my personality because I'm also someone antisocial. But I think what that does is if you look to the future, it becomes, well, I know what I'm here to do. And people, and I've announced, by the way, in every conversation to you, to other people like yourselves who are, you know, people understand what it is I'm here to do. And so right. you draw that, you draw that towards you. And so for you, if you're saying, I'm here to dismantle the empire that true crime has amassed that is destroying our society, I'm with you on that. And people will hear you and that, that yeah. will be drawn towards you. So maybe you don't get the next gate to make the next serial killer slasher that's really popular right now. Maybe you don't get that call. Yeah. But you're going to get the call from the one producer who's like, actually, I'm with her and I've been waiting for that person to do that. The so right lot, call. The right call. The right call is better than many calls that are going to lead you nowhere. And that is such a great way to contextualize this career that we're in. And one one that is a career that takes, it takes years to find your voice and figure out who you are so you can plant that flag on the yes. top of the hill. It yeah. also, I also feel thankful that I had a different career and it wasn't until my late, late 20s and now I'm in my 30s that mm. I was able to, to, grow and live life and make mistakes to get up to the point where I'm like, okay, now I'm actually just at the very, very beginning. Like here, I think to be in at the stage that you're at and you're like coming up on 42 is you are a a baby director in the, in the grand scheme of things. For most sure, for people. Sure. So it takes a lot of pressure off. And I do know that in my twenties, I actually took myself out of the running for a long time because I thought it was too late, which is, you know, yeah. It it takes so much pressure off to have the context that it takes time, it takes decades to figure out what your voice is and how you want yeah. to put it out there so you can declare it and then to, this is one of the will be one of the quotes of the episode which is to like the right time and the right opportunity will come to you and will sure. present itself. For sure, for sure. And I think about it like when I was 21, what stories would I have been telling you at 21? Not to say the people don't have obviously we have Directors to start out early, and that's wonderful for them. But I just feel like I have, you know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I've traveled. I just have things that are to me more insightful to say at this stage in life than mm-hmm. I would have had two decades ago. So a lot of these things are for me just uh, being grateful for and accepting the moment in which you're in. And when the, the door opens for you, be happy it opens then, as opposed to like, why isn't it then? You know, take it, take it now or take it tomorrow and be happy whenever it comes and do yeah. with that what, what you will. When, when you feel any, or maybe you don't feel it, but I sometimes do feel that anxiety creeping up. Do you have any coping mechanisms or is it just that you have been able to contextualize it based off of your, your extensive experience? I think the, so we live in, whether it be social media or we live in a world in which an era of hyper projection in the idea that we all, as a society, as a culture, all project the best versions of ourselves into the world. And this is not a right or wrong thing. It's what we do. And so if all you see, whether it be in social media or wherever is the successes of, of everyone that you know, and you happen to not be having successes in, on, on the day or in a month or in a year, you obviously, as a human being, are going to think that you are terrible and you're just not worth it. And I think, I think the first step is like, you know, people, you ask me about Sundance, you don't, and I got really lucky. I got my first film, The Sundance, but people haven't seen like the many other festivals that rejected my work prior to that. And so, of course, what the world hears about is like, oh, you know, your first film, The Sundance. Yeah, lots of festivals were not interested in me, but now Sundance is, and now surprise, surprise, people are calling. And so it's just the idea of like the world doesn't see a lot of the, the, the misses. They see yeah. the swings, the swings that connect. But I'm a firm believer in taking. I shoot every shot. I shoot so many shots. I think of it in terms of statistics, like if you're a sports person, which I'm not really, but just the, the Steph Curry idea of like, mm-hmm. you throw so many balls at the basket, that just like statistically, one of them is going to land in there. And like, yeah. and you, only, you only need the one. Maybe you need one a year. If you shoot a yeah. thousand, you're, you're going to hit one. And so I think a lot of us fall into this, this rut of like, rejections really, really hurt. And also by collecting those no's, collecting those rejections, if you shoot a thousand shots, by missed shot 99, it's not going to be a big deal. It's not right. becomes, you can think of it as a, in terms of collecting the no's. Yeah, yeah. The more of those no's you get, they get you closer statistically to the next yes. I try and to so, celebrate them because it means we're putting ourselves out there. For sure, for sure. And it's just, you know, I, I saw that you were gotten the, the Phil Independence Bear Awards and you're like, 
Fellowship, that's that's great. Thank it's just, you. These are things that are like are, are really hard to get, but you only get those by being vulnerable and by putting in the work, putting yourself up, out there, and by not getting to all the ones that you oh, applied yeah. to. Being rejected that. a ton of yeah. times before and that. It, and so, and, and by the way, getting into one thing doesn't mean to get the next thing. It's like it's a continuous yeah. up and down roller coaster of like this is life forever, basically. Absolutely. Um. So, I, so to your point, coping mechanisms for me is just trying to take kind of a understanding first of all that there's enough for everyone, and that mm-hmm. the, the, when you when you there and again lies the beauty of having a pretty unique voice because if you have a specific point of view then you don't feel so bad when your friend gets like the popular gig. Basically, you can say, well, that maybe wasn't for me anyway, and I would understand why they would get this other really talented person because mm-hmm. perhaps that person can communicate in a way that is more right for that gig. Right. But only I can say what I can say. And right. when it's time for me to say what it is I can say, like the film that we're discussing, that's a film that I haven't seen and, like, and I know nobody else on the planet can make. Because my experience and my background is so unique. It's not that I'm the most talented. It's just that I have a very specific background and, and the, the work comes from a specific place. And so yeah. when you, le- you lean into both your vulnerabilities and your superpowers, if you were the only, there's only one Gigi in the world. And so when you give the world that, nobody else can. And so it hurts a lot less when you lose a job that wasn't going to be you anyway. Because it's like, yeah, right. I, didn't really, I wanted to go to that party. I wanted to be invited to the party. I didn't really want to go to that party. Right, really, right. So it's the truth. That's I was, so I wasn't real. Gonna, I wasn't going to be happy there anyway. I just wanted to say that I was there. So obviously, it's it's it doesn't ever stop being painful. But I try to to recognize that. Like I look back on, I've had the gift of like having a degree of validation, little pieces along the way. So mm-hmm. I now now understand that as an artist, I'm not a crazy person. So I I at least have some things to say that are, are worthwhile, and they're not always going to connect. They're not always going to land. But for me, I at least have, it's helpful to have these things to look back and like, well, all right, Black Panther was five years ago, but yeah, that was my stuff. Or Sundance yeah. was now half a year ago, but yeah, that was my film in there. And so it's like, I'm not, you know, there is a degree of credibility that is, these things are, while you don't want to be married to them, they are right. helpful because it's just a, a signpost. And sometimes yeah. that, that signpost is your mom, or more often than not, it's you in the mirror going I believe in this. I believe in this. Yeah. And it's not today, not tomorrow, but I believe in this before anybody else can. It's interesting that you brought up the Film Independent Episodic Fellowship because that felt like my first external validation of I'm not crazy because there is the element of starting and your taste is higher than your ability. And it took a lot of, it took three years to get to the point and a lot of iterating and a lot of making things. But I do remember there were little, gradually more significant wins along the the way, validations. And they weren't always great. Some of them were like, hey, we considered you for this thing, but we ended up going in a different direction. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'll I'll celebrate that. And uh, But it is so nice to have the win where you're like, okay, I'm not crazy because it's very easy. And for people, including my you know, when I was leaving my previous career, sure, my sure. dad and my ex-boyfriend were like, you're crazy. Sure. You want to, why yeah. would you do that? Yeah. And so you have to also trust, like, if you have that creative instinct, and I bet you see this more than most people, like, if you don't chase your creativity, if you have the creativity within you, it, that'll be worse if you don't do yeah. it. No, it's, I mean, I, for me, it's, I'm capable of being a lawyer. I've done that and I, I, I would be fine. But what I found is that I, I've had much more impact as an artist. And I, you know, I, I'm literally traveling the globe with this work. I'm touching people in different countries. And I say that as a, as a point of fact, not, a, not as a point of ego. It's nice as well. But it's, it's, it's also good to recognize that like, nobody knows you in this world better than you. And there are people who love you, who want the best for you, right. who, don't, who don't know you as well as you know you. And so if you have a very, very strong sense about what it is that you're here to do within this very, very short period of time that we're on this planet, um, you owe it to yourself, and frankly, you're doing yourself in the world a disservice by not being your best self. Yeah. And so you, you can go and be a half-ass mediocre, fill in the blank of whatever you, you and I's previous jobs were. Yeah. We can we do that, and we might even excel at that. But I think you and I know that we're not sick our souls on singing. Unless yeah. We're we're doing this, and then when we when we see ourselves in these spaces in which we're like we're really like oh this is the pure essence, people can tell, and it just radiates, and it radiates through the work. 
And then that becomes the gift. And so it's nice when yeah. you get a, a fellowship or a great check to come along with it. But really and truly, it's the whole thing about like, well, we would do this for you because I would do this to save my life. Like, this right. is the thing. This, this saves thing. our lives. Yeah. Right. This lets our soul. Was there, yeah. I, I, was there a moment when you were a lawyer where you were like, okay, I need to do something different or, or a conversation where, that you had to have with a loved one where you're like, okay, I'm actually going to not do this anymore. And how did that go? I, cause I think I, a lot of emerging filmmakers listen to this podcast and I think a lot of them, like you and me started listening as they were, you know, learning yeah. and starting. So that conversation might be helpful for them to hear or that hearing about that Tony turning point, especially like the law leaving law. Sure. Sure. I mean, that's, so I think for me, the thing to recognize is like, it's never the reason those conversations ha- eventually aren't had is because they're often had with people who care about you, who see you work really, really hard to accomplish and achieve a thing. Um, and then it would look like you're going to toss it out the window and it looks like it's kind of like an objectively crazy thing to be doing. It's like, yo, you just spent all this debt, all this, all this, yeah. everything. What are we doing here? Um, and so it's a rational thing for somebody to be, to ask you, why, what are you doing? And I think the answer generally, however you phrase it, is you're at this point because you have to be. And so, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, it's, it's that simple it's because it's like, this is, I have to do it. And I th- also, I think there's something to be said for the practical thing of like, it's not like you can't ever go back, you know? It's, yeah. So you, you can always, but, but if you never look and try to find out, you will just never try to find out. And I'm not interested in being like on a deathbed somewhere being like, oh yeah, I wonder what would happen if I wrote that thing or made that thing. Like, it's just, life is really short. And if you have the opportunity, you should find out what you're made of. It's so. okay to do your plan B first yeah. and then, which is what you and I did. Oh, well, yeah. thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to say as we wrap up here? Otherwise, let us know where we can follow your work. Uh, I can be shown, uh, my fashion brand is called Ikiri Jones and that's where we are on all socials. That's I-K-I-R-E-J-O-N-E-S. But I would say that if nothing else to my fellow storytellers out there, it is better to be quiet than it is to be frivolous. It is better to be quiet than to be frivolous. So whatever it is that you have to say, figure that out and say it in whatever format you can today. Don't wait till you have the Alexa, even though, by the way, Bravo Burkina, a gorgeous film premiering in Sundance this year, was shot in Alexa Mini and it's fantastic. Watch it where you can, find it where you can. Next film, Kiaru Skoro is coming up next. Thank you. We'll be watching. Thank you so much, Wale. Thank you, Gigi. Thank you so much to Wale Oyejide for taking the time to speak with us. The warmth and heart that he brings to his work is contagious, and I can't wait for you to see the beauty that he brings to the screen. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Let us know your thoughts. Podcast at nofilmschool.com. You can also follow us on social media at nofilmschool and go to nofilmschool.com for more information and articles about making your film. Thanks for listening.